So let me ask you a question. Has anyone ever had a sermon start like that before? Raise your hand. (laughs) Probably not, nor have I. But I guarantee you, if you have been desiring to worship and honor God for any amount of time, that's not the first time that Satan has interrupted your worship. Because the more we commit to honor God, the more we focus on him, the more Satan tries to distract us and lead us away. It happens all the time. See, from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, the devil has tried to take our eyes off of God. It it happened from the start. In the fictional book, Screwtape Letters, uh, by C.S. Lewis, how many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Great Christian author, uh, tremendous man of God. He wrote some fictional books that that help us have some insight on how Satan works. And in the Screwtape letter, he tells of Screwtape, who is playing the part of Satan, and how he instructs his nephew Wormwood, an upcoming demon. He, he, he He instructs him on how to distract people, how to confuse us and take our eyes off of God. Screwtape yells the tells the young demon, the goal is not always wickedness, but indifference process that for a minute. The goal that Satan often puts before us, especially today, is not that we would be wicked and overtly evil, but that we would just be indifferent and not care about anything. The important thing, Screwtape says, is to keep them comfortable. If they become the least bit concerned about anything of real importance, then get them thinking about something else, like their plans for lunch, which has happened before in worship, hasn't it? As you were in Sunday morning worship, you start thinking about lunch and and going to the lake and the baseball game and the grandkids, and all of a sudden, your eyes off of him. He tells Screwtape to keep them, or Wormwood, to keep them comfortable, keep them distracted. He sums it up by saying this, and I quote from the book, I will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. I wonder if you care. I I hope the opening monologue was a little bit uh, uncomfortable. That's the point. Because if Satan has us where where we're deceived and thinking that it's okay to to not care about anything, then then he's got us where he wants us. My prayer is today that as we study God's word, that you become more aware of spiritual warfare because it's real. And we become more aware that Satan wants to deceive us and and keep us from focusing on Jesus. And that you would uh, commit again today to put God first not only today, but tomorrow and the next until Christ returns. Uh, the spiritual battle that we face is real. And there is no more dangerous of an enemy than the one that you believe doesn't exist. Okay? Your most dangerous enemy is that one you, you're not even sure if he's real. I want you to know the devil's real. And you don't have to take my word for it. It's in the word of God. Uh, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5. Be alert. Be aware. And of a sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil does not want to roam and looking to make friends, looking to bless you. He, his desire is to devour, uh, to kill, steal, and destroy any and every life that he comes into contact with. That is our enemy. So, so we need to understand who our enemy is first. Your enemy is not who we often make it. It's not Cubs fan if you're a Cardinals fan, okay? It's just that's not your enemy. Your enemy is not your nagging neighbor 
or your frustrating friend. Your enemy is not even that person with the, the totally different political view than you. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil today and tomorrow. And he has three common uh, tactics that we're going to see in God's word today that keep us from focusing on Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. It's where we're going to uh, find these tactics that Satan uses. In Matthew chapter 12, we're wrapping up this sermon series today called Breakthrough, and it's been challenging to me. Uh, today is a, another day we're going to step on some toes, including mine, but we're going to find it in, in the Word. But we're also going to see Satan's tactics to keep our eyes from landing on Jesus. Look with me to Matthew 12 starting with verse 22. Uh, leading up to this, Jesus has just held a man that had a, 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 a crippled arm, and he has just claimed that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we come to this text. Then a demon-oppressed man, uh, some Bibles say demonized or demon-possessed. We know this man ha had great difficulty with demons because the demons even led him to be, what it says here, a blind and mute this guy had major physical problems based on the spiritual oppression, and he was brought to Jesus. And notice this in half a sentence. It says, and Jesus healed him, so the man spoke and saw. Uh, it just gets less than even a full verse here. It says this man who was demon-oppressed and really taken over by demons, Jesus took care of the need like that. That's the power of Jesus. If you have a battle that's physical or spiritual, especially the ones that are spiritual uh, connected to sin, Jesus can free you in a moment if you trust him. Look at the text. It, it, it says this man spoke and saw. He was relieved of this oppression. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? The common people, I don't know if this is you or not, but, but the, all the people, except the religious leaders were there. We're going to see their opinion in a minute. Uh, the, the people of the world, they saw Jesus' power and they were amazed. They're like, is this the son of David? Uh, they're basically saying, is this the Messiah, the one we've been looking for? Is this the one that's going to save us? Is he the one that Isaiah talked about thousands of years ago? They were like, this is really cool. They were excited. But look at verse 24. The religious leaders, the people that went to church every weekend, the people that thought they had it all figured out, look what they said. But when the Pharisees, these religious leaders, heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. I hope this breaks your heart. The most religious couldn't see who Jesus was. The, the everyday man and woman were like, Is this the Messiah? Uh, we're excited, we're amazed. But then these religious leaders says, Nope, it's by Beelzebub. But who's Beelzebub? You may have heard that name before. It, it's a slang term that literally means Lord of the flies or, or Lord of the underworld. This was a slang for the devil back in that day. But they don't just use a slang for him. They, they go ahead and, oh, this is by Beelzebub. Um, and they go ahead and say who he is. They're calling Jesus the prince of demons. They're saying he's connected to Satan himself. And here's the first tactic of the devil that we need to be very aware of. He wants to confuse us and distract us to the point we don't know the difference between good and evil and evil and good. What we see here happening is the fact that the devil is wanting everyone to acknowledge that Jesus and the good thing he did and the good person he was, was the devil. Satan will always be willing to say good is evil and evil is good. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it happens more and more. 
If you're aware of it, you, you start to see it. And it happened back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. It's been going on since the beginning of time. In Genesis 3, God uh, tells Adam and Eve, hey, you can do anything. This is all good. I made this, this excellent world for you. It's a perfect world. There's no flaws. But my only ask of you, hey, of this tree, it's bad for you to partake of it. It, it, it will be against my will for you to eat of it. Don't touch it. But Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say that it was bad? See him doing that? Uh, he said, what God has said is bad is really good for you. And if you eat it, you'll be like him. That's why God doesn't want you to eat it. Did God really say that? And Adam and Eve began to ponder and they began to think and they were deceived with confusion. And what God told them not to do, they said it, they heard from Satan it was good and they partook of it. They enjoyed it for a moment. Satan will always say good is evil and evil is good. It's one of his basic tools. And it still happens. So time out. What have you been convinced of? And I'm not going to give a suggestion right away. What have you been convinced of by the world or by Satan himself? Something that God has said is evil, but you have embraced it as good. What has been put in your heart and your mind that, that, that God has said, please don't do this. This is off limits. And you have, by your own thinking, thought that you were wise enough and, and, and more mature enough to handle it and you could get by doing it. As long as I can keep it under control, even though God said it was dangerous, I think I can get by. Maybe it's this idea of drinking, but not too much. Maybe you can even get drunk and you get drunk on a regular basis, but as long as you don't drink and drive and hurt anybody else, it's okay. Even though God says drunkenness is, is wrong. Maybe you can gamble as long as you don't gamble away the grocery money. Maybe you can look at porn as long as it's private and no one's hurt. We, we tell ourselves we can handle these things as long as we keep them under control. We put down our friends as, as long as they don't find out. What has God led you to know deep down your heart was wrong, but you're like, that's really good for me as long as I keep it under control. Look what the word of God says about this all the way back to Isaiah 5. What sorrow for those who say evil is good and good is evil. That dark is light and light is dark. That bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. What the word of God here is saying, what God has said is off limits. When we, in our clever uh, creation of how great we think we are, we think we can have the, the good and the bad and enjoy it all together and we can handle it, we are deceived and we become foolish. What are you convinced of that you can handle but God said was bad? We live in a world that continually confuses good and evil. Pay attention. Here's how you'll see some of it sometimes. In media, in songs, and TV, and movies, and based on the news, there are things that our society celebrates and applauds and highlights, and oftentimes the things that are highlighted most that go against what God says is real is doing this very thing, is saying that's good when God has said it's bad. And our world really works at us trying to celebrate that and to accept it. Paul warns of this type of confusion about good and evil and right and wrong in Romans chapter 1. 
And what he says here is striking to me, and it's going to provide our remedy to fight against this. He says, whenever we give into this, when we think we're so clever, we can do these things, even though God says not to, what it limits us is from worshiping God. Notice as I read this, worship is in this first paragraph three times. Look what it says. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. We're so clever, we don't worship him or give him thanks because we think better. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Satan is the author of confusion and deceit. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Notice oftentimes when we think we can do it on our own, the first thing we abuse and misuse is our own bodies. Oh, we're we're clever enough to figure this out. God said it was wrong, but we can do it. And they traded truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped, notice this, they didn't worship God and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Paul says, amen to this. God is the one who is worthy. So no matter how wise we think we are, no matter how wise we believe we've become, what God has declared as evil is evil. What God has declared as good is good. And when we try to hold on to evil and also have a foot in good, we make fools of ourselves, and it becomes distracting. And in that, guess who we don't worship? God. We get so distracted, we get so confused, we don't worship God at all. So I want to declare today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after, next day after that, that God is the only true thing that deserves worship. In his perfect form as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he alone is worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen? So God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are the ones of worship, of worthy of eternal worship and praise. So next time you feel that confusion, I'm going to give you an ammunition like a bullet to fight against it. Here it is. When you feel the confusion, you feel like the world is telling you to to say this is good when it's really evil or this is evil when it's really good, here's the first thing you need to do. Proclaim that God is good and praise him for what he has done. Uh, Take time to worship who he is. So here's the first weapon against Satan in this. When you hear him exchanging good for evil and evil for good, declare him as good. And don't allow him to claim goodness of things that are evil and things that are sin. Let's go back to the text now. Verse 25, we're going to see this other offensive weapon we have. Here's another miracle of Jesus. It says, knowing their thoughts. I mean, that's powerful. He knew their thoughts. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom then do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. Jesus is just in an argument here that he wins in a moment by some very basic logic. He says, you're saying that I'm a part of Satan's plan. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. He says it doesn't work like that. A house divided against itself will fall. And he says, and you have other apprentices or sons under you that cast out Satan and you don't say they do it with the devil. Then why are you saying I do it with the devil? And he won the argument. I believe they were silenced by this. He uses logic. Jesus is truth. He's logic. He says, I'm not of Satan. 
But look at verse 28. But it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Excuse me, but he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, if I'm not of Satan and these demons are overcome by the Spirit of God, you're missing the mark because I am very likely, he says, I am the Messiah. If I'm doing this by the Spirit, he would have been quoting an Old Testament prophecy by Isaiah that the Messiah by the Spirit would be able to have control over evil. And they're missing the mark. They're missing the point. So Jesus says, I'm not of Satan. And if it's of the Spirit, you're missing the point. You're rejecting the Messiah. Guys, whenever we call evil good and good evil, we're, we're not along with the truth. We're, we're going opposite of the truth. We're opposite of God. When we wonder if God is good, when we wonder if Jesus is really good. If we even wonder if Jesus is really God, it's a very dangerous place to be because we're going against truth. But it's not, some, it's not the most dangerous place to be. In fact, you can be forgiven of being doubting of Jesus or even speaking against Jesus. But Jesus here in this text is going to tell us there's a much more dangerous thing to speak against and it's not him, but it's the Holy Spirit. Look back to verse 32. Jesus says, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Seems strange you can speak against Jesus to be forgiven, but that's how forgiving God is. But any, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. But here's what Satan always tries to do. He tries to get us to speak against God's Spirit. He tries to get us to doubt and speak against the Holy Spirit. He loves for us to be in conflict with the spirit and then deny the spirit. Satan will speak over and over again throughout history and through the word against the spirit of the living God. He wants to so confuse us and deceive us that we don't know what spirit to trust so we walk away from everything and we're deceived. Jesus says that type of rejection, speaking against the Holy Spirit, cannot be forgiven. And that's serious. What does that look like? It's a question that has to come to our minds. When we know we can uh, be forgiven of anything but speaking against and denying the Holy Spirit, what, what does that look like? Mark Moore this week in our uh, Quest 52 does a good job with an illustration that I've never really heard of before where he uh, envisions a rope with knots tied on it. Maybe imagine it hanging from the ceiling here. And, and our object is to just hold on to the truth of salvation, to, to live for God. But here's what happens as we begin to be deceived. We give in to sin and temptation. So you slip down the rope a little bit. You let go of a knot. And then we start questioning if God is really good. We let go of another knot. We, we may even speak against Jesus and, and we let go of another knot. We, we keep falling down the, the rope. What he suggests is, and this is just an illustration, but it makes sense to me, that the very last knot on the rope of faith, the rope of salvation, is the Holy Spirit convicting us to come back to God, to, to pull back up the, the rope, to hold on to truth. But if that last knot of the rope is hearing from the Holy Spirit, when we mock the Holy Spirit, when we speak against the Holy Spirit, when we can no longer hear the Holy Spirit and we let go of that rung or that knot, there's nothing left to hold on to. And we're forever apart from God and his salvation. Hey, while that's just an illustration of how it may look, Paul tells us also in the Bible what it starts to feel like, what, what we begin to do in Romans chapter 1. I think it's very much like what Paul says. At some point when we know God, but we're so full of pride, our hearts can't hear from the Holy Spirit, 
bad things happen. Look what it says in Romans 1, what this looks like. Paul says it's, we have a debased mind, which is a word we don't use very much, or a depraved mind. And here's what this mind will do. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is God in general, God, God big picture, God gave them up to the debased mind to do what ought not be done. So here's what happens. When, they, when we totally reject God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, when it's all out of our minds, God turns us over to do whatever we want, and our minds totally reject everything of God. We push away even the Holy Spirit. Look what happens. And they were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's right there in the middle of it all. It kind of seems strange. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, they know what God's word says, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, notice this, they, they know what's evil, but we do it anyways. And he says, notice this, but also they give approval to those who practice them. And this is where it steps on my toes and yours more than, you're like, well, I'm not a murderer. You may have disobeyed your parents, but you're not doing it regularly. You're like, well, well, I'm not full of pride. You're like, I don't do those things. But he even says these people that are far from God that have pushed the Holy Spirit away, they approve of their practices. Our minds are so far gone when we don't have the Holy Spirit that, that we not only do things, but we kind of celebrate because that's what that word means. This Greek word here for approval at the end of this text, it literally means to applaud or to celebrate. Without saying anything out loud, without me acknowledging yet, have you ever known something that God said is evil that we celebrate for an entire month every summer? Have you ever seen something that God says, hey, this is sin that we want to applaud? This is what this context is talking about. It may be, though, as simple as disobeying a parent or murder. I'll get back to that in a minute. But some of you are thinking right now, well, I haven't done any of those things. I don't promote haters of God. I, I don't celebrate malicious or murder. Our world has made a great effort, though, to celebrate what God has declared as sin. Our world ha has called something a pure love and something that we should have pride in, and it is sin in God's eyes. When we approve or applaud and have no concern, we push away the Holy Spirit, and, and what's meant to draw us back, we reject, and then it's over. Look what it says here. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is in Romans 1 as well. For their women exchanged natural relationships for natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relation with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The due penalty of this sin is like any other sin. It leads to death. Uh, the sin that we're talking about here, uh, exchanging natural relationships with women for women and, and, and getting into relationships with men for men, the, the, the consequence is the same as any consequence of disobeying the parents or murder. It is separation from God. And hear me clearly, I'm not solely talking about homosexuality here, even though it's the first sin that's listed. 
This is a dilemma of the entire heart. When God says something is wrong, we get prideful and say, I can handle this on my own. I I can do this and God doesn't know best. And we call evil good and good evil. He says your heart is broken. It becomes dark. It's not just about homosexuality. It's about any type of heart matter where we disrespect God. And and I felt it this week. Yesterday, uh, Tiffany and Daly and I were getting ready to go on some a little trip to do some errands. And right in the middle of this text is this idea that you're not to disobey parents. And we've all disobeyed our parents. We probably regret some of that. Daily was being told, and I could hear it throughout the house. I was in the front of the house. They were back in the bedroom area, but they weren't in the same room. And they were having this discussion for everybody to hear. It's just me was the one who was hearing it. But Tiffany told Daly to put on some certain clothes and some certain shoes. And Dave said, no, mom, I don't want to do that. And she said, no, you're going to do that. And Dave said, no, I want to wear these shoes. And for about a minute, there was this disobedience and bickering going on. And this text screamed at me into action. Because what I realized, even though I was not involved in the conversation, by me being in the house and daily knowing that I'm hearing her disobey her mom, I was approving, if not even applauding, uh, the mess before me. So I said, I'm, I, in my mind, I said, I'm not going to celebrate this. What Daly's doing is wrong, but what I'm doing is wrong as well. Letting my daughter disobey my wife creates a mess for not only our family, but for my daughter because her development is, is going awry. So I went into her bedroom as calm as I could, and I said, Daly, you will put on the clothes and shoes your mom said, and that's the end of the story. And whoop, 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 it, they were on. Not because I have ultimate authority. You know what it was? is because she saw her mom and dad united and she knew she needed to submit. It was end of story. How many times in our homes, moms and dads, husbands and wives, do our children see us not maybe even uh, against each other, but just being silent and they think, well, dad must approve of this, so I'm just gonna push on it harder. Fathers, here's my call to you because I know a lot of houses are like this. The mom carries a heavy load of of clothing the kids, keeping them uh, on the right path, instructing them, and we're silent. And what they need as much as anything is unity that we're on the same page of what they say goes. And obedience needs to flow. And a lot of you grandparents are like, Yeah, hear that? Grandparents, you're no better. Because here's what happens. Grandparents, you see a child uh, disobeying, maybe mom or dad or both of them, and you sit back and say, well, isn't that cute? I don't have to say anything and they're not my kids anymore. With your uh, approval from a distance, you're almost uh, a feeling uh, of applauding them and agging them on, especially when they're at your house, in your car. You need to come alongside your son and daughter and discipline your grandchildren so they'll behave and obey their mom and dad. It's not the only place my toes were stepped on this week. It says murder. You know, we don't, we don't celebrate murder, do we? I, I've never celebrated murder. You know, when, when someone is literally murdered, it breaks my heart. But then I realize some of my favorite movies have some assassin coming into people that really don't deserve to die. And I find it amazing and are drawn to watch these movies where maybe in the opening scene, 20 people are killed in a moment. And while I don't celebrate, I'm like, wow, that was cool. And you could be a man or woman and get into that. Uh, my, my, my point is there are times whenever I sit back while I don't condemn it, I just sit there and observe it. I am in essence applauding the whole nature of things and it's dangerous. 
I wonder what we have been tricked to applaud that, that is evil. Here's the central point of the whole message. When we know God and we don't worship him as God because he, we are distracted by things that he declared evil, over time our hearts become dark. At that point, the devil has us right where he wants us, not even hearing the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we can do is worship him. And then we need to make sure that, that we are not pushing out the Holy Spirit. Some of you are thinking right now, though, I can't believe he brought it up in June. I know he's probably going to talk against homosexuality some, but, but uh, he shouldn't have done it in June. I, I can't believe that that's what we're talking about, especially this month. But I need you to know I, I am wanting, desiring to be faithful to the word. And it doesn't matter what month it is. Sin is sin. And if God calls it evil, it is evil. It is wrong. But that's really not my biggest concern that some of you are not understanding that I brought that up. My biggest concern is there's one person here, maybe, maybe two, that are wondering if they can ever come back to God because they're fearful. They push the Holy Spirit so far away that there's no hope for them. Here's my biggest concern, and hear me. I want you to know there is hope for you today, right now, through Jesus Christ. And you can be forgiven of any and every sin, whether it's disobeying your parents when you're five, or, or a sexual sin this weekend, heterosexual or homosexual, whether it's drug abuse or, or, or uh, being caught up in, in celebrating murder, whatever's in this text that you feel like you pushed God away from so far, you could be forgiven today. Isn't that good news? Yet some of you are still concerned that I'm talking about this in June. I would submit to you, your pride is growing so high, you can't hear the Holy Spirit anymore. My concern is that people know the, the forgiving love of Jesus Christ and that he loves everyone, but he asks us to call good, good, and evil, evil. So we need to promote the truth of the Holy Spirit no matter the cost. Push back against evil by proclaiming what is good. It's in the text. Look what it says. So he's really mad, and I'm not mad at any of you. I'm just getting fired up. But in the text, he's mad at these religious leaders for calling him Satan. He says, you brood of vipers. There's an exclamation point there. He says, you, you rotten guys. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. He says, your, your true heart's showing the good person out of good treasures brings forth good, and the evil out of evil treasures bring forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by the words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. He says it matters what you say, so we need to proclaim truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Proclaim truth inspired by the Spirit to confess Jesus as Lord, because it's about following Jesus. We are not saved by how good we are, how bad we are. We're saved by the grace of Jesus. So he says we must proclaim Jesus the Lord and Savior of our life. So when you feel this tension, when you feel like maybe you pushed the Holy Spirit away too far, here's the good news. You haven't. You haven't pushed him out too far. Because if you hear my words right now, you can change that. But here's a way to push against that threat is confess Jesus. 
I got to be honest with you. I have met people that I think are demonized or demon possessed, and I've tried to help them through that, prayed for them. And the greatest remedy that I have in this, if they will be willing to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, bondage breaks. There's breakthroughs there. And I have sadly enough been with people, and they're right to the moment. They want to be helped. And then whenever I ask them to confess Jesus as Savior, they can't do it. They can't say Jesus. So I want to have effect on this today in your heart. If you're fearful that maybe you push the Holy Spirit away and you're, you're feeling your toe stepped on, you're feeling like, man, something is not right in my heart. It is not my words. It's the Holy Spirit working your life. And my suggestion to you would be to claim Jesus as your Savior with your mouth and say it. Okay? So we're going to do this together. If you, if you want to say this, uh, it, it's powerful to do it together. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity beyond that, that we're just going to confess Jesus together as a congregation. And we're going to repeat these words in a minute. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he's my Savior and Lord. So let's say that together. Anybody wants to proclaim this and push back against Satan and this confusion, let's say it together. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, Christ. the Son of the living God. And he's our Savior and Lord. There's power in that. There's some release. There's a breakthrough that happens. Some of you have never done that personally yet. So here's my opportunity for you today. Things are a little different. You can tell by the opening monologue, right? If you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior, I just want you to raise your hand if you want to do that today and you can do it right where you're at. If you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you can just repeat right after, right after me, right where you're at. It's different. I want to also let you know at the end of the time today, during our worship time, you can come forward and do that with me personally. But it's so important for you to say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. There's something power in that. When confusion comes, confess Jesus. Amen? So here's one more thing. Satan will always say Christ's signs are never enough. Let's look back to the text. Let's end it here. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. See, these are these rotten dudes again. They're like, Jesus, we know you're powerful. Just let us see another sign. Then maybe we'll believe. You ever felt like that, God? I know you're powerful, but, but I want you to take care of this. I've done that before. I was like, Jesus, just show me. I'm having trouble believing. Give me another sign. That's what they're asking. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's talking about Jonah now. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm going to be buried, he says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I wonder how often you do that. God, I'm ready to believe. I'm almost ready to confess you. Just give me a sign. Just give me another miracle so that I can know I can trust you, so I can know that my confidence can be in you. Satan always makes us want a little bit more before that we confess, before we baptize. Just give me a little bit more proof. I usually hear it this way, Tyson, uh, I'm ready to, to come to know Jesus, but, but I just need a little bit more help, so i got to get my ducks in the row. Do you know what Satan will do? He'll keep your ducks all over the place and if, if that's your remedy to come to him. I've never seen anyone come to Jesus before they're baptized and their ducks be in a row. In fact, if that's your litmus test, you know what's going to happen? Your ducks are going to get way out of place this week. 
He, he wants us, give me one more sign. Help me to get things in place before I come to you. Give, give me one more miracle. Take care of my mortgage. Save my marriage. Give me some type of miracle and I'll believe. Satan is always saying, God's never quite enough. It, you need a little bit more, but here's the good news. Jesus has said right here, I am everything you need. I am the sign. I, I'm going to be buried three days. I'm going to be uh, crucified and buried in a tomb for three days. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. That's the good news. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was fully God and fully man. And yet we crucified him on a cross. And in that moment of crucifixion, God allowed our sins to come upon him. The Bible actually says that Jesus became sin. He became sin for us so that when he was crucified and the death came upon him, that sin could be done away with forever. And when he arose three days later out of the grave, out of being buried in the earth, he had victory over both sin and death, and it is forever. So today, if you believe in Jesus, don't procrastinate, don't put it off, don't hesitate, but proclaim your faith is in him because he is more than enough. Jesus and his resurrection is more than enough. We don't need another sign. I am all for miracles. Please understand that. I'm, I'm here for a, I'm very open to a blessing from God for my boys and my daughter and for this church. But our sign and the resurrection is enough for salvation. Amen? So put your faith in him. God's willingness to save you is here. Don't ignore it. So here's my testimony. Jesus is enough for me. I am a sinner saved by grace. I've disobeyed my parents. I've been prideful. I've enjoyed uh, celebrating murder by watching movies. And my list goes on and on and on and on. And Jesus is more than enough in his death, brown resurrection. He calls me to change. So what do you do when you know Jesus is enough? That, that's really what's being asked in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter's preaching the very first sermon after Jesus' uh, ascension into heaven, and he is letting people know that they were a part of his crucifixion. They, they, they played a part, and so did you and I. And, and the Bible says their hearts were cut. Like, the Holy Spirit, I believe, was, was working on them. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do to be saved? And here's what... Peter said, repent and be baptized. I, want to go, I don't want to go over this too quick. The first is repent. That means you're going to realize that you're a sinner and you need change. It's not enough just to say we're sorry and keep going and keep going. But, but repentance is like, God, the Holy Spirit is cut to my heart. I know I'm wrong and help me to change. And then when you're baptized, when we're immersed in the water with Christ and we go under the water, it's, we share in his death. And when we come up out of the water, we share in his resurrection, the victory over death and sin, and we are forgiven. The Bible says it this way, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says every one of you, and you will receive. It, it, it's what you've done. A minute ago, uh, many of you said, I believe that Jesus is Christ, Son, living God, with the group. If you've never done that on your own, don't put it off. If you've never been baptized with the age of understanding, don't put it off. But live for him because he's the greatest sign. Satan asked you at the beginning of service, who, who do you serve? I'm asking the same question. Who, who do you really serve? Father in heaven, help us to serve you and you alone and your son Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and the way he draws us to you. 
Lord, let us leave here today empowered and strengthened and encouraged because of the power that you have over the devil. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.